Welcome to the Oxford University Psychiatry Podcast Series. I'm Daniel Morn and I have the pleasure of having Dr Rupert McShane, who's a consultant psychiatrist and an honorary senior clin- clinical lecturer here at the Oxford Department. Uh, good morning, Rupert. Morning. Thank you for agreeing uh, to come and speak to me about your interesting research that you're doing into uh, treatment-resistant depression and using ketamine in, in these circumstances, which has received a lot of media attention and um, has had some interesting results. Um, so perhaps we could start uh, by learning a little bit about you and, uh, and your, your role here in Oxford and then uh, move on to think about this, this use of ketamine. Okay, thank you. Well, uh, I'm an NHS consultant, uh, I'm actually an old age psychiatrist by training, uh, and uh, I have for well over 10 years now looked after the ECT service here. That's electroconvulsive therapy. That's electroconvulsive therapy, yeah. Um, so come back to that. But I've had sort of um, an interest particularly in dementia as well, and, have, uh, and I, I look after the um, Cochrane Dementia and Cognitive Improvement Group, which does systematic reviews in, in dementia. And I've also um, got involved with the uh, local clinical research network, which uh, the aim of which really is fundamentally to recruit patients into clinical trials in dementia. So I've been interested in trials generally um, uh, for for some time. But um, the the aspect of my job that um, uh, has sort of taken off and has. Uh, uh, sort of gone off in a direction that I hadn't expected is 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 the ECT and treatment resistant depression. Um, so you're, you're an old, you're old older adult consultant, yeah, and, and you've got a specialist in, in sort of dementia and electroconvulsive therapy. But you found that your recent research is, is more in the general adult population and treatment resistant depression. Is that right? That's right. So so about about half of people who have ECT are elderly, and the other half are, are under sixty five. Um, and uh, have a, the, because, by definition they're having ECT because they've got treatment resistant depression usually or usually um, and one day Phil Cowan um, said to me you know there's this sort of exciting new work about uh, ketamine why don't we think about putting in a grant so I so we did that and uh, after a couple of failed attempts my wife said to me well why don't you write it as a safety study uh, which I did and of course that's when I we, we were successful in getting that grant. So good Phil, advice. So um, Phil Cowan's a professor here, and yeah. he's done a podcast and mentions this ketamine study. Mm. Um, and just just for those of you who might not be aware, what what is a safety study, Rupert? Well, so um, this is what it says on the tin, really. I mean, it's uh, you, you're trying the you're giving patients a small, relatively small number of patients the drug to see uh, how well it's tolerated. And we were also interested in the feasibility of whether you could give these ketamine infusions, so it's an intravenous infusion that we were giving, whether you, you know, we had to think about how you, where, how you would give that. And um, the obvious place to do it was in the context of the ECT suite while patients were having uh, ECT. And the reason for that is that um, that's, that's the only time that we have an anaesthetist around. And the anaesthetist is very used to using ketamine. So it was making a virtue out of a necessity, really. We put so we um, uh, the patients who uh, ha- have had ECT come through to a recovery room, and uh, what we decided to do was to use one of the beds in the one of the three beds in the recovery room for 
uh, patients who were having ketamine infusions and the anaesthetist would set up the infusion while, he, while we were treating the other people on the ECT list. Right, so that's really helpful to understand the practical implications of this study, but I'm really interested in the fact that ketamine is actually a, a recreational drug mm. and it's a fairly radical idea to be using ketamine uh, in this particular uh, situation. So what, what was the reasoning? What's the neurobiological uh, basis for this use? So the the uh, original observation came from uh, out of the basic science, actually, and the, the idea that um, depression may have uh, uh, at least a part of its etiology may be based in an abnormality of glutamate um, uh, transmission. And um, ketamine is an, is a, uh, an antagonist at one of the glutamate receptors called the NMDA receptor. And interestingly, that's that's one of the receptors that's particularly responsible for long-term potentiation, in other words, the consolidation of memories. Um, but uh, so, so the original observation actually was made uh, about a decade ago, and uh, then more recently a group at uh, NIH in the States did, a, did an RCT, uh, a small RCT, which really showed just what a dramatic effect ketamine could have in people with treatment-resistant uh, uh, depression, and that was the reason that we decided that it would be worth pursuing and getting some experience of that in 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 this country. So it's got a sound neurobiological basis, but but presumably some potential scepticism from from um, potentially lots of quarters because of its recreational use or its potential um, uh, psychedelic or hallucinogenic properties. Yeah. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the neurobiology is very exciting because recently it's been shown that ketamine can uh, induce the uh, very rapid um, uh, outgrowth of uh, dendritic uh, the spines on the dendrites. Um, so if you imagine a tree, this is the sort of terminal twigs that are in fact what make the connections between neurons, and they tend to retract in, in chronic depression. Um, and in fact, perhaps... You know, might be the reason why you sometimes see brain volume loss in depression. But um, in, the, in, in the petri dish, you can see the the, the neuronal cultures uh, where the spines rapidly um, uh, grow out again after with ketamine in a way that's dependent on a particular neurotrophic factor called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. So the neurobiology of this is, is fairly rapidly being understood. The main problem that we've got is understanding how you can maintain the, um, this outgrowth because, uh, and also how you can maintain the, 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 the beneficial effect. So you talk about the recreational use of, of ketamine, and, and you're absolutely right. Yes. That's, that's a, that's a um, key sort of... Uh, Well, it isn't actually as much of an obstacle as you'd think, because even even the the committee that has recently rebadged the uh, ketamine in terms of its controlled drug status, they said you know this shouldn't apply to medical research. So there's quite a wide recognition that that, you know ketamine, which is a very safe drug, it's the most widely used anaesthetic in the world, just about, uh, and very widely used in the third world because it doesn't have much by way of cardiovascular changes. Um, so the recognition that it's safe it's, it's in fact it's on the WHO essential drugs list right. um, so so yes there's a risk of diversion um, but obviously if you're giving it intravenously that's not a risk if you were going to give people oral ketamine that would potentially become a risk although 
frankly, you know, one tends to see that if people are really benefiting from something, they'd rather not give their drug away to anybody else. But well, it is, but it is a risk. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think potentially the the, the change in the, in the the situation, the clinical situation, uh, compared with anaesthesia, it is, it is different because mm-hmm. in anaesthesia you've got an unconscious patient, whereas mm-hmm. you're dealing with patients who who have come in and their mood is low and they're struggling with day-to-day life and you're giving them a drug and they're experiencing potential um, hallucinations. And um, Okay, so yeah, so there are side effects and obviously it was a safety study. This is one of the things we wanted to look at and um, people get marked dissociative phenomena. So things look different, sound, sound a bit more metallic, um, people have uh, sort of out-of-body experiences, really, and feel, or feeling that they're detached from their body, I should say. Um, uh, and, yes, as the dose goes higher, then people uh, might develop visual hallucinations, and certainly when people are coming around from ketamine anaesthesia, they often have very pronounced visual hallucinations. Um, the dose that you're right, that the dose that we're using is much lower than that, so it's used anaesthetically so the patients sometimes feel do feel sleepy have these experiences but they're not they're not actually going to sleep you know with with the anaesthetic so let's move on to the results Uh, tell us about what 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 patients you've had through and and what's been their their journeys and what, what what results have you seen with this study so so um what we wanted to do was to see whether um, if you gave ketamine infusion once a week for three weeks, it, you'd get any difference compared to giving it twice a week for three weeks. That was a sort of fairly basic sort of uh, um, design, and we just studied 12 patients in each group. Um, and uh, it, it essentially what, what we found, I mean, it was summarised, I thought, nicely by the Huffington Post um, Headline that, that greeted our results, which was, you know, yet another trial shows that ketamine's an antidepressant. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that that just sort of um, says it. I mean, it was big news here in the UK, but in the States, they are oh, they've seen it all before. You know, it's uh, not nothing too too dramatic. But I have to say, it was really dramatic. You know, the, the, some of the some of the cases, the. Uh, uh, speed of response we, we found that some of them needed two infusions, which was quite interesting, they didn't respond to the first infusion or they had a sort of sense of something, but at the second infusion um, several patients it was at that point that several patients really had a clearly very marked effect on their treatment, these people have been ill for many many years often, uh, were functionally extremely disabled um, and uh, you know it, it was uh, Life uh, it, was, it was like yeah, absolutely, you know, it was like awakenings. It was, in, it was spine tingling. That the awakenings uh, book by uh, Oliver Sacks. Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Wow. So it's it very dramatic effect from from these ketamine infusions. Did they did they report any problems with it, having the treatment? So so I mean, having, having said that, you know, there were some patients who responded dramatically. There were some who didn't respond at all. Right. So it was a rather clear sort of dichotomy there. Um, and uh, we don't know how to predict who's going to respond and who, who isn't. There may be genetic uh, determinants of that. There's a, uh, a single nucleotide polymorphism that might predict that, and in fact it's related to BDNF. Um, so, uh, um, so, so some patients benefited, some didn't. The duration of the response was um, 
very variable as well, and that was interesting. Unlike all the United, uh, unlike all the US studies we've uh, uh, that were done up to that time, uh, we kept people on their existing antidepressants. So um, uh, that was another aspect of the safety study: is how what would happen if you gave ketamine on top of other antidepressants, and if anything, it seemed to prolong the response. But even then, you know, we had we had one patient who who's, who had a, a few infusions, and they had a response that lasted nine months before they relapsed. We had several that lasted four months, a couple that lasted one month. This sort of this sort of thing. So about um, thirty. So most pe- most people don't have prolonged benefit from from ketamine. And I think it's an absolutely key point. Is that you know there's an awful lot of work to do yet in working out how you can sustain the response. Um, but about about 30% of people will have a response that lasts at least three days and that's sort of consonant with some of the other literature some of the other literature will will, will sort of tends to refer to a 70% response rate but that often often is based on what what things look like at a day so uh, although it's dramatic it's 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 often quite short um, but there is this group that has a much more prolonged response, and that's very interesting. So, yeah, is there some further research potentially being thought about? Or, yeah. or, or so, so, I mean, obviously, this is you know, how can you, how could you, how could you um, uh, sustain the response? And I'm in a, in, in a way, I'm in a sort of fortunate position in that because we've got these pa- these patients who have had a, a definite benefit, and we know that it's going can be a clinical, you know, life changing benefit for them. It's it's not unreasonable to try for those individual patients um, uh, to add in other drugs, which one thinks might potentially sustain the response. So this isn't done in a protocol-driven way. This is done with a sort of experiment, clinical experimentation with each patient. They're they're you know fully consenting. They understand the issues and they understand particularly the. The, the level of ignorance <laughs> that we're at, and that some of these things are by nature, um, you know, a bit of a shot in the dark. But yes. these are people who are very, very sick. And what kind of medications are you? Are you so, so we've obviously been interested in in, in other NMDA related drugs, and in particular those that promote um, transmission through the AMPA receptor, which is one of the other glutamate receptors. And um, at a neurobiological level, what seems to um, uh, seems to maintain the dendritic sp- spine outgrowth is the is the uh, movement of AMPA receptors uh, from a sort of more peripheral position in the synapse to a more central one that seems to be involved in the in long term potentiation and consolidation of that of that synaptic transmission. So, um, so we, I mean, in a, you know. It's one thing to to, 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 to to move AMPA receptors around <laughs> in synapses, but but you know we have all we have is drugs that we can give people and they see what they do. So we've we've tried memantine and paracetam and um, acamprosate and uh, you know various various uh, NMDA and and glutamate related drugs. It's, it's none, none, none of them seem to have helped. But but of course these are you know we've done it in very small numbers of patients hard to know, you know, wouldn't want to write those drugs off, uh, although there has been there have been negative trials of uh, of memantine in particular. Um, of course you have this problem with the electroconvulsive therapy um, of, of of rapid um, dramatic responses, yeah. but time limited responses and and the sort of therapeutic 
uh, response to that has been uh, to ensure adequate medication to to prolong the response. Right. Yeah, so so you're, right. you're using that as a template for... for yeah, that. sort of. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, about 50% of people who have ECT relapse and have responded relapse within six months. So it's not great, but it's better than the alternative, which we can go with, with um, uh, psychological and drug treatments. Rupert, it's been really interesting hearing about your study on, on ketamine, and it's. Uh, I think there's a lot that uh, uh, you have yet to discover and, and it's interesting to hear your, your current th- thoughts on that on that area but thank you for taking the time to speak to me today and well, thank you yeah, thank, it's, thank it's, it's, it's incredibly exciting I can't tell you how exciting it is you know it's the sort of thing that makes it worth really worth doing psychiatry you know seeing pe- people like this get better so dramatically it's just incredible I think it's a, a common fallacy about psychiatry is it not that you don't see patients getting better yeah, it's a fancy. I mean, I'm very lucky in that this is really dramatic. But, but yes, you're right. You know, there's nothing better than you know treating people with any sort of you know, any sort of uh, paradigm and them coming back grateful. Yes. Oh, well, thank you for that, Rupert, and thank you for tuning in to the Oxford University Psychiatry Podcast Series. Please do tune in again.